You're listening to the British Baseball Podcast. Hello baseball fans, Matthew here again with another episode of the British Baseball Podcast and this week we're looking at March's uh, month in British baseball history but before I get into this week's show I'd like to invite each and every one of you to subscribe where you can and review it if possible. It only takes a couple of minutes, in fact you could be doing it right now as you listen to this in your ears. Um, It'll help grow the podcast and get out there to more people in turn sharing your stories and also British baseball content. I've also set up a buymeacoffee.com, so if you fancy supporting this independently run podcast, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com, search for Brit Baseball Pod, as you do with all the social medias, and I should be there. And for the price of a cup of coffee or a, or a pint of beer if you're down in London, well, maybe not that much, uh, you can help me um, with the, the payment for some of the stuff that I use in the show, and uh, it'll help me towards, um, hopefully, can't promise, but produce better content. Uh, but that's enough of me waffling on, so let's get into what you've all come here to listen to. So March's baseball history, you'll be glad to know that there's very little mention. In fact, I don't think there's any mention at all of any coaching seminars that, that take place, which seems to be the focus of early time. I'd also like to thank Matt Thomas of Angels um, Over the Pond uh, for some contribution towards this as well. And if you like anything of what you hear, or if you want me to look at more focus on certain periods of time or teams in British baseball history, then let me know through the usual channels or emailing britishbaseballpodcast at gmail.com and I'll do some research and see if I can bring you a feature piece on teams from the past, players from the past, that sort of thing. So, Matt, thank you very much for this. I really appreciate some of the, the well, appreciate all the stuff that you sent across. And um, I'll put links in the show notes where you can find Matt's full articles on his website. So... 31st of March, 1755, an 18-year-old William Bray recorded the following entry into his diary. After dinner, went to Miss Seals to play at baseball with her, the three Miss Whiteheads, Miss Billinghurst, Miss Molly Flutter, Mr. Chandler, Mr. Ford H. Parsons and Jolly. Drank tea and stayed till eight. Sounds very Downton Abbey-ish, but William Bray was a well-known um, for his um, diary and um, as a diarist, I'm trying to say, and local historian in Surrey. And his diary in manuscript form came to light in England during a 2008 filming of an award room documentary called Baseball Discovered by Miss Sam Marciano. As of the summer of 2006, the earliest appearance of the term baseball was found in a 1796 description of English baseball by the German writer Johann Gutschmuffs. That publication was about to be knocked back for another 40 years when the American documentary um, director from New York City and an eagle-eyed English lady who lived in a 1500s house in southern England discovered Bray's journal. That summer, MLB.com Sam Marciano was working on what she on what was to become her award-winning film Baseball Discovered when one day she and her small crew were in Horsham, England, filming an eager collection of teenage girls playing a game of rounders and that film crew itself was a subject of interest by a second camera crew and this belonged to the BBC South News. Later that afternoon Trisha St John Barry happened to glance up at the BBC News covering the rounders game 
And she understood the BBC reporter claimed that the term baseball was known back in 1790s, but Trisha knew better than that. So she called BBC South and then BBC South called, then called Sam. So about 20 years earlier, Trisha St. John Barry had heard from a friend who was clearing out a shed by discarding some recently ancient piles of paper. And with the helpful aid of a bonfire, she was going to burn these, these documents. Already being known as, a, as someone who was fond of really old things, Trisha uh, stepped in and salvaged what turned out to be an ancient diary by William Bray. And his entry for March the 31st was a one-sentence entry for that day. And it was just highlighting um, by his church tenants drinking tea in the evening and playing baseball with six young ladies and four gentlemen. I'm pretty sure it's not um, what we, we know baseball is today, but there you go. Uh, Trisha has been planning to transcribe the whole 1755 di diary at some point, but the time to do that has never quite been uh, right. But that baseball reference has caught her attention. And while not a lover of the sport, she had remembered the term. And through all this, Sam would uh, soon be able to work um, this into the documentary itself. What a great find. Again, something that could have been there. Uh, could have been disastrous and, and lost if, if the fire had had its way. So now we're going up to March 1888, and uh, this is an, a little snippet from, from what Matt sent over. Uh, the British newspapers picked up on a rumour that leading New York and St. Louis baseball clubs were poised to tour across the United Kingdom. In another attempt at creating a foothold for the now fully organised American baseball, from the back of the efforts of Mr. Falsham, the American consul in Sheffield, who had been working hard to popularise the ball game in Yorkshire. Bizarrely, also in March 1888, the Illustrated Sporting and Dramatic News reported on the return of the president of a St. Louis baseball club from his tour of Britain. And the quote saying, England is now educated up to American sports, end quote. He stated and went on to claim, end quote, the game was too much for them. End quote. The publication, quite obviously tongue-in-cheek, went on to mock the English for being dull and slow in their ways. This approach was hardly likely to win many fans in England, but the message was clear. Britain is ready for the taking if ball club presidents in the States wanted to grasp the opportunities, and Spalding was one of many who did. By November 1888, the first efforts to establish a formal league of baseball clubs in the United Kingdom in the form of the American game was muted by John Barnes, manager of the St. Paul Western League Baseball Club and not the former Liverpool footballer. Barnes' plan was to introduce lecturers to promote the ball game academically before establishing American-style syndicates in London, Birmingham and other key principal, uh, principal cities. It was not until February 1889 that the immense wealth of Spalding began to buy up Colominches in Britain for the upcoming world tour of the Chicago White Stockings and other elite American players, funded, of course, by Spalding. Rather telling, though, was a letter to the Liverpool Echo, published on the 1st of March, 1889, where a local resident called for Stanford Perry, secretary of the local Liverpool baseball clubs, to put together an all-star Liverpool team from local baseball and rounders clubs to challenge the Chicago White Stockings when they arrived in Liverpool. <clears throat> this again shows that baseball or archaeal region variants of it were fully established in some regions of the UK prior to the all-conquering Spalding tour. 
Amusingly, despite this, a writer for the Manchester Times on the 2nd of March, 1889, claimed that no baseball clubs existed in the United Kingdom. Well done, Manchester. Was that was the game so localised that clubs in Liverpool were not known by residents of Manchester, or was the writer simply ignorant? The ties to the 1874 tour were inescapable. The teams relied heavily on cricket grounds, and attracting cricket fans and players like George Wright, the, the brother of Harry Wright, as the umpire. Spalding knew all too well that he was standing on the shoulders of the Wright family, as was made clear by the fact that he paid tribute to W.G. Grace as the best-known Englishman in the world, that's a quote, on arrival at Gloucestershire Cricket Ground on the 9th of March, 1889. On the 13th of March, 1889, Sporting Life produced an in-depth piece covering the exhibition match at the Oval and questioned exactly why the American visitors have placed so much emphasis on London and the South for their early games, when the people of Liverpool would be the best judge of a sport, which they clearly would recognise as a development of their own locally played game. Whereas baseball to Londoners was nothing short of a complete mystery. Spalding's tour was given some added gravitas through the attendance of the Prince of Wales at the Oval. And attendances were adequate, with over 8,000 fans attending the exhibition at Lords on the 13th of March, 1889. As the tour progressed, the people of Yorkshire were given exhibitions in Sheffield and Bradford, and the tour did reach Liverpool eventually too. The people of Yorkshire were clearly enthused about this new form of baseball. Well, and on the 30th of March 1889, a large crowd amassed at Stott's refreshment rooms on Parliament Street in York to form a new baseball club for the city, along the lines of American principle. It was not until the 26th of March 1890, a full year later, that Lay began to develop his Lay's Re Recreation Club into a baseball club proper at Lay's Recreation Centre. Regardless of this fact, Lay used his wealth to persuade the people of Britain that, quote, we were really the first club formed in Great Britain, end quote, when discussing Derby in 1890 to various media outlets. In fact, a more accurate reflection of this part in the development of the ball game in Britain was published on the 10th of October 1889, when the Derby Daily Telegraph reported that Ley had introduced baseball amongst its employees. It is without any doubt that Ley used his financial clout to make his Ley's Recreation Centre the best purpose-built baseball facility in Britain. It went on to become the baseball ground, the home of Derby County Football Club. So let's have a bit of a recap over those events. So 1889, the 12th of March, the Chicago White Stockings faced the All-Americans at the Kennington Oval, and Chicago won that 7-4 in front of the Prince of Wales uh, in very British conditions of rain and mud. The All-American Tour uh, then went on on the 21st of March, 1889, and it's up in Glasgow, uh, west of Scotland's cricket ground. The All-Americans faced Chicago in a contest where the Americans won 8-4. And off the back of the 1889 Tour of Britain, as I said before, the York uh, Baseball Club was um, was created, which which Matt has then argued that it's, it's possibly the, the first uh, baseball club in, the, in Britain um, versus Derby's claims. So let's have a look at some more of these, these scores. The uh, Kennington Oval in the south of London on the 12th of March, 1889, which said there was 7-4 to four in front of 8,000 people. 
The tour then went to Lord's Cricket Ground on the 13th, where the Americans beat into the White Stockings in front of 7,000 people, seven runs to six. Crystal Palace would host the next game on the 14th of March, with Chicago beating the Americans 9-5 to in front of 6,000 people. I don't think these are on-the-nose figures, but it's rounded up. Bristol then took the um, the games on the 15th of March with Chicago winning 10-3. And then up to Leighton in, on the 16th of March, where the games ended um, in a 10 innings uh, for all in front of 3,000 people. Baseball then went up to Glasgow on the 21st of March with the Americans, all Americans winning 8-4 in seven innings. And then it came down to Manchester on the 22nd of March, where it was a close game with the All-Americans winning seven runs to six in front of, oh, 3,588. Maybe it was rounded up, and that was just more accurate. Liverpool then got its baseball turn on the 23rd of March with the uh, the game only being played for five innings, and that was two apiece. And 6,500 people were there for that one. Before they went over to Ireland and Belfast and Dublin, so Belfast on the 24th of March and Dublin on the 27th, with Belfast being tweeted, being treated, not tweeted, I don't think Twitter was around in the 1889. Uh, the All-American team winning nine runs to eight, and then Dublin saw a four-run to three victory to the All-Americans. Got some more of Matt's article, to, if I could read that for you as well. It's a thing of wonderment, then, that by the time the first fully professional National League of Baseball Great Britain got underway, that only four clubs were permitted to compete for the championship none of them in yorkshire liverpool or london on the 5th of march 1890 the sporting life reported that the new association had appealed to spalding to seed the new clubs with american professionals and on the 6th of march 1890 the leicester daily post reported that 12 clubs national that a 12 club national league would be formed with teams to be based at wolverhampton Liverpool, Accrington, Manchester, Bolton, Stoke, Birmingham, and that Lay will convert his existing Rays Recreation Club to become Derby Baseball Club. On the 6th of June 1890, the first annual meeting of the National League of Baseball Great Britain was held at Queen's Hotel, Birmingham, and the constitution being drawn up and agreed upon. Now, the constitution broadly formed um, the rules and regulations of the American Leagues, and Thomas Slaney, there was a president, and Harry Lockett, who's the administrator of the Stoke Baseball Club, with Francis Lady, president of Derby, Willie McGregor, president of Aston Villa Baseball Club, and James Allard, on behalf of the absent William Suddle, would be the president of the North End, uh, Preston North End Baseball Club. They were all in attendance. Morton Betts was in chair. A National League schedule was confirmed for the four clubs with Aston Villa hosting Stoke on the 21st of June on the opening day of the 42-game season, uh, which was agreed upon. And it's clear in retrospect that for whatever reason, the initial plan for a full National League had been sidetracked by uh, mainly Midlands-based core of teams, with Lay supplying the pennants and the badges to the winning club and his self-publicity as the man who brought baseball to Britain. It's not hard to see where his influences have come from. So it's important to point out, this is another snippet of Matt's article, that um, to make clear, Lay's Derby Baseball Club were not Derby County Baseball Club, as is commonly believed. They were nothing more than Lay's own works team, as it's clearly documented. 
in fact, early in February 1889, the Athletic News, on covering Lay's call to football clubs in Britain to form baseball clubs, reported that Derby County Football Club had made their own plans for a club on their own to challenge Lay's Derby Club. On the 8th of August 1890, the Derbyshire Advertiser and Journal stated that Lay had confirmed that he intended to cease the activities of the club and had refused Spalding's request for Derby Baseball Club to envision the National League fixtures. And it was confirmed that Raiden Mack and Willis, American professionals at Derby, were in the employ of Lay in order to let them play for Derby. This was important as a fight between the club centred around the use of fully professional players at Derby and with other clubs claiming it was an unfair advantage. And thanks to Matt for providing this, this uh, great little uh, snippet. And again, the links are in the show notes if you want to read some more. So 1890, we're going back up to Scotland. Edinburgh North Baseball Club had begun to meet for their practice, and Spalding's influence was obvious when the Spalding Baseball Club of Aberdeen sprung to life in July of 1890, their headquarters being at 59 Princess Street, and by August 1890, the financial backing of Spalding resulted in two local rivals emerging in Aberdeen, the Spalding Baseball Club and Aberdeen Baseball Club, who played at the links. The two competed for the Spalding 50 Guinea Challenge Cup and the right to take on the University Baseball Club of Edinburgh. Evidence of Spalding's desire to establish collegiate baseball in the United Kingdom, Wales, possibly due to the continued popularity of British or Welsh baseball, was slow to adopt the American game. So coming out of the 1800s, uh, we're going into more recent times. And in March, top GB pitcher Gavin Marshall, who was currently playing for San Joaquin Delta College in California, he made his head coach, Pat Doyle, a very happy man by recording Pat's 500th career win with an 18-3 victory. And he pitched six innings and striking out nine. 2014, Farnham Park is announced as a new home of GB Baseball, seeing that team move from Milton Keynes to its new home. 2017, Ted Gerard de a massive presence in British baseball for more than 30 years, sadly passed away peacefully at Worcestershire Royal Hospital on the 18th of March, aged 78, surrounded by his family after a brave battle against a long illness. Ted was Great Britain's top baseball umpire for more than two decades, working at 13 national championships and more than 100 international matches. Beyond his role on the field, Ted also trained countless other umpires and was a dedicated administrative official at various levels of British baseball. And that's it. That's March's baseball history wrapped up there for you. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to come on and discuss any uh, bits of, of uh, British baseball history, or you've got a period of time that you want to be looked at in more detail, then let us know and let us know what you think. All feedback's welcome. I had some great feedback from Ian, which we're looking into to try and help make this show better. This is your show, so if there's something that you like or you don't like, please be kind with your constructive feedback and let me know what you think. Uh, but until next time, um, that's me. See you soon. Take care. Sarah. Oh, 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 oh